Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. Good morning, online campus. My name is Steve Garcia. I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church, and we're so glad that you are with us this morning. I've got a question for you today. How many of you are dog lovers? (laughs) Hands up, how many of you love dogs? I am a dog owner who lives in a house full of dog lovers. I'm outnumbered. And so my kids have been asking me for months, Dad, can we get another dog? I'm like, one is plenty. They're like, yeah, but dad, our dog needs a friend. And I'm like, that's why they have you. And they're like, no, they need it. Our dog needs another dog to be the friend. I'm like, okay, whatever. So last Sunday, uh, I'm driving home after church and my son yells out, dad, there's a dog on the side of the road all by itself. And, And so I slow down and sure enough, there's a little puppy sitting on the sidewalk. Now, I'm not a dog lover, but I'm not heartless either. I'm not gonna leave a little puppy there all by itself. So my kids jump out, and this is by no means a ferocious animal that you can't approach. And so they they come up to this little puppy, and his little ears go down, his tail starts wagging, and uh, they check it, and it it doesn't have a collar uh, that has an identification tag on it or anything. All it has is just this this little uh, number, three-digit number that says 651. And so they're like, Dad, can we keep it? I'm like, kids, listen. This is somebody's dog. Somebody is looking for this dog. So this is what we'll do. We'll bring it back to the house and we'll take some pictures of it and and put it up on the neighborhood social sites. And I guarantee somebody's gonna claim this dog within the hour. Uh, It was a cute puppy. So I bring it back to the house and we we take some photos of it and and I post it up on the social sites and and my kids are asking me, Dad, did did anybody respond? Did anybody respond? I, I got a lot of responses of how cute the dog was, how many people wanted to take it themselves. Uh, but, but nobody came forward. You wanna see the picture of the dog? Okay, I, I'll show you. Th- th- this, is, this is the dog sitting in my back seat. Take a look. Yeah, that's, a cute, that's a cute dog, right? Even for those of us who are not dog lovers, that's, that's a cute little puppy. And so my kids are like, Dad, please, if, if nobody claims the dog, can we have it? And so against my better judgment, I say, okay, fine. If nobody comes forward after a week, then we can keep the dog. So the entire day goes on, nobody claims this puppy. Day after day after day keeps coming and nobody's come forward. So now I'm like, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? So my kids decide to name the dog. I'm like, no, don't, don't name it. Then, then you're gonna bond with it. And so my, my youngest son names it Brownie because that's what little kids do. They pick the color of the dog and they add an E sound at the end. And eventually they, end, they ended up on Fluffernutter or Fluffy for short. So. Now we've named the dog and I'm warning my kids, don't bond too much because if we have to give this dog back, it's gonna be heartbreaking. Parents, you you can see where the story is going. And so my advice fell on deaf ears. My kids are walking around holding this little puppy like a baby. You know, they're letting their sleep in in the bed with them. They're they're letting the dog drink water out of their cups. I mean, it is, 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 is getting out of control. And I'm just warning them, guys, just remember, this, this is probably somebody's dog. 
Well, we get all the way to Saturday. We've now had this dog for six days, and now my kids are praying that we could just get through the day so that we could hit the week mark and then they can keep the dog. Well, later on that Saturday, my phone rings, and it's a number I don't recognize, and so I answer it, and the lady on the other end says, yeah, I think you have my dog. And so my kids are all gathered around me, looking at me like, waited on bated breath to find out if this is true, and so I say, is, is there any way you can identify this dog? I'm not just gonna hand this over to anybody. And I said, yeah, it should have a little collar with a three-digit code on it. I'm like, oh no. And so at this point in time, I don't want them to have it. So I'm like, well, do you know what that three-digit code is? And the lady's like, it's 651. My kids are looking up at me on the phone and I say, okay, we have your dog. They burst into tears. So now they're saying their last goodbyes, they're taking pictures with the puppy, and so we arranged a time for the people to come and, and, and pick the dog back up. And so I'm waiting out in front of my house and my kids are holding the little puppy in their arms, little fluffy, and this guy pulls up in this high-end Tesla, hops out of the car and says, yeah, I'm here to pick up the dog. And I'm like, hold on, I was on the phone with a lady uh, but now you're saying it's your dog? He said, oh, that's my assistant. We're dog breeders. That's why the dog has a little tag that says 651. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, well, if you're dog breeders, can we just buy this one? And the guy goes, no, you, you, you can't buy this one. Uh, I'm gonna give this to somebody else. And so we reluctantly hand the puppy over to him. And so I, I kind of half jokingly ask, well, who are you gonna give it to? And he says, well, we have a guest coming in from out of town, and so I wanted to gift this, this puppy to them. And so I ask, well, well, what if they don't like dogs? And he turns back to me and says, well, then I'm gonna put it down. And we're all standing there in shock, walks over to his Tesla, chucks the puppy in the back seat, drives off. This little dog is sticking its head up over the window. You know, I can hear that Sarah McLaughlin song playing in my ear in the arms of an angel, you know. And I gotta tell you, in my flesh, I was not acting very pastorally in that moment. I was secretly wishing harm on this guy. I, I, I was wishing that his Tesla would crash, that he would be completely okay, but that the, the windows of the car would shatter and Fluffy would jump out and, and come back to our family. But that's not what happened. Off the guy went. What a jerk. I mean, this guy would callously keep this dog, even though he had countless others. And, and he would rather kill this dog than give it to a loving family. Dog lovers, come on, how do you feel about that? Well, here's the crazy part about the story. You actually know who the dog owner is. You know who it is? It's you. And it's me. See, the reality is that we sin against each other all the time. We hurt each other. We take things from each other. We callously mistreat each other. Friends, truth is, I made that whole story up, every part of it. I didn't find this dog on the sidewalk. I found it on Google Images. I did a search for cute puppies and this was one of the first ones that came up. And the reason I wanted to tell you that story is so that you could feel the pain of what another person's sin can do to someone's entire family. You see, whenever we experience something difficult, it's always easier for us to identify a bad guy and blame them. In my story, 
the bad guy was a wealthy dog breeder, you know, with his nice car and his, his callous treatment of animals. You see, when we, when we experience something difficult, it's always easier to blame the bad guy. But what happens when you discover that the bad guy is you? How do you reply when the problem is yourself? Today, we conclude a message series on dealing with difficult people that we've been calling Reply All. And we've looked at how to reply when the problem is your family, how to reply when the problem is your child, how to reply when the problem is your boss. Last week, we talked about how to reply when the problem is your spouse. And today, we conclude the series by focusing on how to reply when the problem is yourself. So to guide our time today, we are going to be in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, so you can make your way over there. And we've been looking at the life of David and his many dysfunctional relationships and all the difficult people that he dealt with. But here's the thing about David. David had a lot of accomplishments in life. He killed giants. He won victories. He defeated armies. David had a lot of accomplishments in his life. And up until 2 Samuel chapter 11, everything for David was a win, but that all came crashing down one fateful night. 2 Samuel 11, verse one, read along with me. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Our story begins with a choice. David made a choice. And those last five words of this verse would probably come back to haunt him. But David remained in Jerusalem. The choice David made was not to go off to war with his men, but to remain back at the kingdom alone. And without accountability, David found himself wandering around the palace. Verse two. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So it's, it's tough to know if David stumbled onto the situation or if he knew at that time of night from that vantage point, he was gonna get a show. But either way, he stepped into a trap. Naked woman, isolated man. What would David do? Verse three. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You know what the servant could have said? The servant could have told David, oh, her name is Bathsheba. But instead, he described her as somebody's daughter. He described her as somebody's wife. You almost get the sense that this servant was politely trying to warn the king, hey, if you're thinking about doing something, don't do it. She is a married woman. Make a wise choice here, David. But here's the deal, David was king, and there was no one around to report his bad behavior. Even if, even if a woman tried to bring up an accusation against him, no one was gonna believe her over the king. David had power, he had prestige, and he had a whole lot of resources to cover his tracks. So he made his decision. Verse four, then David sent messages to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. See, David thought he was in Vegas. He thought what he could do there would stay there. But this is a sobering reminder that we get to choose our actions 
but we do not get to choose our consequences. David thought he was just gonna get a one-night stand. Now he was dealing with an unwanted pregnancy and a full-blown scandal on his hands. Here was a woman in the community whose husband was off to war where David should have been, and yet she gets pregnant. Gee, how did that happen? David had a problem, and so the cover-up began. And so David invited Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to his kingdom. This is what happened, verse seven. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. You see what's going on here? What David did was he sent a nice, delicious meal back to the home of Uriah and Bathsheba. He told Uriah, hey, go home, take a shower, eat a good meal. He was hoping to get Uriah in the mood to spend an intimate night with his wife. That way, David would have an, an alibi for how Bathsheba got pregnant. There was only one problem. Uriah didn't go home. You see, he was an honorable soldier and he could not bring himself to indulge in domestic pleasures when he knew his brothers were in harm's way on the battlefield. David had to be furious when he found this out. He didn't go home. You know, of all the men Bathsheba could have married, she had to pick one that was brave and loyal. So, so David decided to go to plan B. He enacted this plan by inviting Uriah to his palace to share a meal together. Jump down to verse 13. At David's invitation, Uriah ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. David's plan was, okay, well, let's see how virtuous Uriah is when his inhibitions have been worn down. Continue with verse 13. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. And isn't this incredible? Drunk Uriah was more virtuous than sober David. David just could not cover his tracks. As it turns out, Bathsheba's husband was just too much of a good guy. So David resorted to stiffer measures. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David ar David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So the plan worked. David's commander put Uriah in the fiercest battle and he was struck down and killed. And with Uriah out of the way, David married Bathsheba. He already had six wives, what's one more, right? And so now the whole thing was buttoned up. The whole scandal was squashed. David could now move on with life. Not so fast. You see, we could fool other people, but we cannot fool God. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet. Prophets spoke on behalf of God. Remember, people back then didn't have access to the complete Bible like we have today where they could learn what God wants for their lives. Instead, prophets sp spoke to them on behalf of God. 
And as we learned in part one of the series, when a prophet shows up in your town, people got nervous. Oh no, what's the prophet doing here? I wonder how David felt when Nathan showed up on his doorstep. I wonder if David started getting a little squirrely. Like, oh no, does he know? There's no way he can know. I covered everything up. I got alibis. I got explanations. I'm good. So David and Nathan go out to his back porch and sip a cup of iced tea. And Nathan says to David, you know, I'd like some advice. I want to tell you about a situation I encountered. And I'd love to hear how a wise king like you would counsel me. So he goes on to tell David a story. Now, remember the story I told you earlier about the lost puppy that I found? Yeah, I copied that story. You know who I copied it from? I copied it from Nathan, because he told a similar story to David. Listen to this in verse one. He says, there was two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and killed it, prepared it for the one who had come to him. So I told you a story about a little puppy. And the reason I did that is because I know how many of you are dog lovers. So why do you think Nathan told David a story about a lamb? Because long before David was famous, long before David was a hero, long before David was a king, David was a shepherd. And not just any shepherd, a good shepherd. David put his own life on the line to care for those sheep. He once killed a lion who tried to get his sheep. He once killed a bear who tried to get his sheep. David didn't just herd sheep, he loved sheep. So Nathan told him this story about this cute little lamb and boy, he laid it on thick. And David's hearing the story about, about a poor man and he's got this, this cute little lamb and it's all he has. And then a rich man comes along and rips it away from his family and slaughters it so that the, uh, uh, he could prepare a meal for a traveler. I mean, don't you wonder if, if Nathan was like, you know, David, I have a picture of the lamb. Would you, would you like to see it? And he shows him this picture right here. I mean, David had to see this sheep and be a blubbering mess. You know, David just loved sheep so much. His, his heartstrings weren't just being pulled. They were being ripped. Don't you wonder if David took a look at that picture of that little lamb and he started talking to it in one of those weird little voices that pet lovers talk in, you know? Who's a cute little lamb? Who's a cute little lamb? You are. You are. I mean, he had David hook, line, and sinker. And so David couldn't take it anymore. The, the story was killing him. So you, you want my advice, Nathan? Here's my advice. He says this in verse five. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Fellas, this is the one time in life you never want somebody to say to you, you are the man. You know, this interaction between Nathan and David is one of the most fascinating insights we have into the human condition. 
because it exposes the blinding nature of sin. David was completely blinded to the fact that this entire story Nathan was telling him was about David. David was incensed. How could a man who has so much rip one thing away from a family who has so little and kill the innocent and ruin a family? How could someone do that? And that's when Nathan pulled the carpet out from under his feet. He said, David, that's what you did with Bathsheba. David discovered in that moment that the bad guy in the story was David. How do you reply when the problem is yourself? You know, this message series has forced us to wrestle with a very difficult question. You know, David is described in scripture as a man after God's own heart. But David had multiple wives. David committed adultery. David committed murder. I mean, if this is a man after God's own heart, what does that say about God? See, here's the thing. You and I aren't too different from David. Okay, maybe we, we didn't commit adultery, though Jesus did say anyone who lusts after another person in their heart has committed adultery. And, and maybe we haven't murdered someone, though Jesus did say we murder others with our angry words. See, we're not all that different from David. And, and the reason why David was given such a lofty description as a man after God's own heart was for this reason. David was repentant. David had a heart that ran after God. He wasn't perfect, far from it, none of us are. David made horrible choices that brought with them bad consequences, but David understood that when you fail, you run back to the Father. And that's what set him apart. See, after Nathan opened up his eyes, look how David responded. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David confessed his sins, and that is the kind of heart that God is after. How do you reply when the problem is yourself? Well, I think based on this scripture and from the life of David, there's a couple of really important lessons that we can gain. And so if you're taking notes, jot these down. Here's the first one, how to reply when the problem is yourself. Number one, take the blame, don't pass the blame. Listen, all of us are gonna fail. All of us are gonna make mistakes. When that happens, we need to own it, to take the blame, not pass it off. You know, it's interesting when you compare King David with his predecessor, King Saul. See, God rejected Saul, but he accepted David. But when you compare their list of sins, David's were way worse than Saul's. But upon further inspection, we find that one took the blame while the other passed the blame. Let's look at the life of Saul. Uh, back in 1 Samuel 13, Saul found himself in a fierce battle and, and needed God to intervene. And the prophet Samuel came to him and said, wait here for seven days and then I'm gonna come back to you and we'll go from there. So by day seven, since Samuel didn't show up right away, Saul got a little jumpy and decided to make a sacrifice to the Lord, a job that was only supposed to be performed by a priest. Moments later, the prophet Samuel showed back on the scene. This was their interaction. 1 Samuel 13, 11. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men 
were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Whose fault was it? It was the men. They went running away. And oh, by the way, Samuel, you didn't get here when you said you would. Just two chapters later, we find a, a situation in which God instructed Saul to kill an enemy, to completely destroy them, to not even leave their cattle alive. What did Saul do? He killed the enemy, but he spared the life of the king, and he also kept several of the sheep. So Samuel shows up, and this was their interaction then. 1 Samuel 15, verse 14. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them. Samuel snapped. He's like, Saul, you did not obey. And look how Saul responded, verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. Have you ever been in an argument with someone and they agree with you, even though they're saying the exact opposite thing. I mean, isn't this a hilarious statement by Saul? I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back the king. Well, that means you didn't completely destroy them. You partially destroyed them. Partial obedience is not obedience. Every parent knows this. You know, I, I, I tell my son, can you pick up your nasty socks off the floor and bring them up to your room and put them in the dirty clothes bin. So what does my son do? He picks up his socks from the floor and places them on the dinner table. And so I say, son, you did not listen. He says, yes, I did. You told me to pick up my socks and I did. I totally listened. No, you didn't totally listen because your funky socks are two inches away from my mashed potatoes. I told you to bring them up to your room. Partial obedience is not obedience. Saul was a guy who passed the blame. First, he blamed the soldiers. Then, he blamed the prophet. Then, he blamed the soldiers again. And when he got called on his behavior, he took partial responsibility. Compare this to David. After this confrontation with the prophet Nathan, David wrote the words of Psalm 51. Let's read a few of those verses together. Beginning in verse 1, David said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Look at all the personal pronouns. Me, my, my, me, my, I, my, my, me. You know what David could have said? He could have said, have mercy on me, O God, but Bathsheba has to share some of the blame too. I mean, come on, is there not a more private place she could have taken a bath? And, and hey, let's face it, when she came up to my bedroom, she didn't exactly resist, okay? She bears some of the responsibility here too. That's not what David said. He confessed his sin. He said, this one is on me. And this is so critical if you wanna move on from the kinds of mistakes that you make, you gotta own them. Take the blame and then don't use the word but and then justify your actions. Yeah, I lied, but. Yeah, I cheated, but. Yeah, I hit him, but. No, 
take the blame. Don't pass the blame. This is so critical. How do you reply when the problem is yourself? Number one, take the blame. Don't pass the blame. Number two, solve the problem. Don't shelve the problem. Many of us have a problem even right now. And how many of us tell ourselves, it's fine. It'll all sort itself out in the end. This too shall pass. Ever have a cavity that healed itself? Ever have a cavity that sorted itself out in the end or that just passed and went away? I haven't. See, here's the thing. If we don't deal with our problems, our problems will deal with us. They almost never get better on their own. In fact, they almost always get worse. We can't just stick them on a shelf and hope they go away. We need to actually deal with them. Earlier, I read you Psalm 51. There's another Psalm that many people believe David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba, and that's Psalm 32. And listen to these descriptions David gives of both solving the problem and shelving the problem. Psalm 32, verse three, he said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Did you catch those descriptions that David used when he had shelved his problem? When he had tried to cover up what he did with Bathsheba? Listen to this, my bones wasted away my groaning all day long, my strength was sapped. Does this sound like a guy who was enjoying life? Yeah, he squashed the scandal. Yeah, he covered his tracks, but it was eating him up inside. This is what we call good old fashioned guilt. And it continues to war within your spirit and stir within your heart a deep discomfort. That was David shelving the problem. Now here's David solving the problem. Listen to these phrases. I acknowledge my sin. I did not cover up my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions. God did David a favor by sending the prophet to him. Now, now David could come clean. And what was the result of him confessing his sins? Verse five, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Isn't it ironic? that for David, he actually found peace when he got busted. You see, David had a problem and he kept trying to stick it on the shelf and it kept getting worse. It's always easier to deal with a problem when it's this size instead of when it's this size. What is the problem going on in your life right now? Is it a hard conversation you know you need to have with someone? Is it an embarrassing struggle that you're afraid will get out? Are you headed down a road that you know is going to end in destruction? What's the actual problem? Are you sticking it on the shelf? Or are you willing to solve it? You know, there's a leadership guru that I like to follow. His name is Seth Godin. He's an author. He's a, a leadership coach. He's an entrepreneur. He, he does a lot of things and he keeps an extensive blog of leadership principles. And typically his posts are paragraphs long, but I'll never forget several years ago, he had a blog post that was one sentence long. 
And I wanna read you that entire blog post right now. This is what it said. The problem you can't talk about is now two problems. Boy, that's true, isn't it? Because here's the thing. When you don't solve the problem, you still have the consequences that are lingering. We can't do away with those. Those are gonna come. But we also have the internal turmoil of having to keep it hidden. Friends, this is no way to live. David himself said, it was destroying me. And when he was finally able to get it off his chest, when he was finally able to confess his sins, he received the forgiveness and his guilt went away. This is what God desires. He doesn't want you living under guilt. So it's better to just face the problem now than wait for this thing to grow. Solve the problem. Don't shelve the problem. How do you reply when the problem is yourself? Number one, take the blame, don't pass the blame. Number two, solve the problem, don't shelve the problem. Here's the third. If I can repent, God can restore. To repent means to change your behavior. To restore means to bring something back into existence. And so the principle here is if we turn our hearts back to God, make a, make a concerted effort to change our behavior, that God can bring things that we lost in our failure back into existence. See, God's not going to remove that which we earned because of our sin, but he can restore that which we lost because of our sin. But it's it all starts with us turning back to God. And if you wanna repent to God, I wanna give you a great prayer that you can pray. It's found in Psalm 51, let's jump back to that one. Verse 10, David said, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Isn't that a powerful prayer? I mean, how many of you could use a clean heart right now? How many of you can use a renewed strength right now? How many of you wanna get back to that simple joy that you tasted when you first embraced Christ? It's possible, but it begins with repenting. That's what David did. He, he cried out, God, God, give me a pure heart. I got a problem. I got a problem with women. I got multiple wives and, and I, got, I got concubines and, and none of them are satisfying. If they did, I wouldn't have went after another man's wife. I got a problem, God, I need a pure heart. And will you give me a, a spirit that's steadfast that I could stay the course? I don't wanna keep getting back into the same old problem. God, restore to me the joy I once felt. I wanna feel that joy again. How many of you wanna feel that joy again too? It all starts when we turn our hearts back to God. Again, he's not gonna wipe out all the consequences, but if we're willing to repent, he can give us a new lease on life. He can write a new chapter in our stories. He could bring things back into existence. You know, there's a beautiful part of this whole tragedy. Even in David's lowest point in life, God was able to birth something special. 
You know, at the beginning of the New Testament book of Matthew, our author lists a very important family line. Let's read it together. This is Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David. And so at the beginning of Matthew, we get the whole genealogy of Jesus. And so as you read down the verses, we see all of, all of the family members in the line that Jesus came from. And there's a lot of familiar names in there, but I want to call your attention to verse 6. It says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Translation, Jesus comes from the line of Bathsheba. In Jesus's family line were swindlers, hookers, adulterers, and murderers. And then came Jesus, the God-man, born of the Virgin Mary, completely sinless. Jesus lived a perfect life. He didn't even sin one time. And because he lived a perfect life, he was able to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And when we place our faith in Jesus, what happens is we, we experience a transfer. Our sins get placed on Jesus when he died on the cross, and in exchange, we get his righteousness or rightness. Through faith in Jesus, we can be made right with God. And Jesus' rightness is greater than your wrongness. Today is the day that you can experience peace, and freedom and forgiveness, but that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have one? Have you ever invited Jesus into your life? Have you ever confessed your sins to him? Have you ever professed your faith in him? If not, I wanna help you do that right now. In just a moment, I wanna lead you in a prayer. A prayer of just confessing your sins to God, believing in faith that Jesus did everything that you need with his finished work on the, Christ, on the cross, that he died in your place, and then committing to following him. So if you wanna receive Christ into your life right now, then I want you to repeat a prayer after me. I'll give you the words, but you have to pray them in faith. So right here, right now, I want you to repeat after me as we pray. Jesus, today I put my full trust in you. Wherever you're watching this or listening to this, pray these words right back to him. Jesus, today I put my full trust in you. I believe you are God who died on the cross for my sins. I ask that you forgive me. I ask that you give me a new heart so I could leave my old life behind and follow you in new life. I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. If you prayed that prayer today and genuinely believed it, then I wanna encourage you to let somebody know. If you're watching this live right now on sunrisechurch.org, there's a little button there that says, I commit my life to Christ. Click on that little button. And if you're watching this on Facebook or Instagram or, or on YouTube, hey, write in the comments, be bold. Let somebody know, today I said yes to Jesus. We wanna be able to follow up with you. 
pray with you, celebrate with you. Again, if you're watching this at our online campus on sunrisechurch.org, click on those little hands, get those hands up so that we could celebrate with you. And for everybody else, maybe you're sensing that God is stirring something in your heart, it's time to take that next step. Don't shelve it, take that next step. Here's how to do it. Text NEXT to 909-281-7797. What somebody will, will do is they'll, they'll receive that message and they'll get back with you and customize your next step. Maybe you wanna join a small group, maybe you wanna get involved in serving in your church, maybe you just need somebody to talk to, some help. Don't stay put, don't let the problem grow more. Take your next step today text next to 909-281-7797. Friends, I, I hope this message series has been a blessing to you. Next week, we kick off a brand new message series that's gonna stretch all summer long. It's all about spiritual warfare and we're calling it Battle Ready. And we've got some exciting things planned for you this summer to help you get in the fight so that your summer can be marked by victory and not defeat. So be thinking now who you can invite with you to church next week and experience this together. Listen, the most difficult person you will ever deal with is yourself. So how do you reply when the problem is yourself? Listen, we're all gonna make mistakes. We're all gonna have setbacks and failures, hopefully none as egregious as David but we are going to have failures. So what do we do? Number one, take the blame, don't pass the blame. Number two, solve the problem, don't shelve the problem. And never forget, if I can repent, God can restore. There is nothing and no one outside of God's perfect, forgiving, redeeming love. And if he could restore someone as messed up as David, he can do the same for you. Do you believe it? Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I want to encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word next to the number 909 281 7797. That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve or just talking with someone one-to-one -one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by sometime and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.